The authorities allowed today's guest to work for years on the human body without a medical license, despite the fact that all of her subjects, one way or another, wound up dead. Still, she never needed to worry about a malpractice suit. In fact, she was trusted to testify in court after court, and even the police had to get her permission for certain actions. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Diddly dee, I'm the coroner. Diddly I'm the coroner. And I'm a coming for you. People are intrigued by that which scares them. And one of the things that most definitely scares people is the idea of death. My guest today is Donna Frankart. And Donna Frankart has had the, well, the distinction of a very unusual job for most people. She has been a deputy coroner. She's written a book entitled, I've Seen Dead People, The Diary of a Deputy Coroner. Please welcome to Watching America, the wonderful Donna Frankhart. Donna, welcome. Uh, so delighted to have you here. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Let me ask you, uh, we know already by uh, the, the dis- acknowledgement of the book's title that you did wind up being a deputy coroner. But as a little girl, I don't imagine you said, I want to grow up and look at dead people. What did you want to be as a little girl? What was your favorite toy? What did you envision doing in the future? Well, I absolutely did not have any interest in death or horror movies. I had a typical childhood as a little girl. Um, You know, your middle class, wonderful parents, loving home, loving family, My mother was born and raised in Ireland, so we would spend every other summer with family over in Ireland. So I was blessed to be able to travel from a very, actually from an infant in arms. And uh, my typical childhood was just like most girls at that, in that time period of playing with dolls. And then as I got a little older, listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and uh, so it was just a very normal upbringing, loving upbringing. You had a, a very nasty crisis that uh, occurred early in your life. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you'll feel comfortable talking about this, but you you, you lost your uncle. Uh, he was murdered. Uh, yes. Certainly, um, although there might not have been an immediate connecting of the dots, it did play into, I presume, um, what you eventually would go into as as your career. Um, prior to that, you worked in corporate travel. So how do you make the transition from corporate travel to being a deputy coroner? Um, first, for my uncle, yes, he was murdered. And I was the one that uh, took the phone call when my aunt called when this did uh, take place, when this happened. And of course, it uh, was a very difficult time for the family. And so at that time, it was uh, it's a very horrific thing to deal with, losing a loved one in such a, um, a horrible way. And down the road, I do believe that it did in some way play out how I started going down the path of being interested in helping others. I, uh, yes, I was in the travel business, corporate travel for over 30 years. As a matter of fact, I continued working full-time as a corporate agent at the time that I was also a deputy coroner. How I did get into that field was back in the early 2000s, I went through a divorce We had two young sons, which, of course, would be with their dad every other weekend. And at that time, I wanted to be able to do something that would be constructive and help the community. And I had heard about a 
a team, a volunteer team that worked with five police departments in our area. And what they would do is they would be paged out on calls ranging from domestic disputes to uh, to death, unexpected death. And so we would uh, go to these scenes and then we were more of an emotional support for the people involved in the case, whether it was making coffee for the family, uh, making phone calls for them because whatever the circumstances were, they may not be thinking straight or perhaps uh, giving teddy bears to the children. I did apply for the position and then I was uh, interviewed by a panel of police officers. I was accepted, went through training for several months and then did get on the team. So through that team of victim crisis responders, I seemed to always be getting called into the room when there were death calls to help them to remove the body. And of course, I was still very fearful of death, hadn't been around a lot of death other than, you know, the tragedies in our family. And, but I was intrigued by it. And so I would help them to remove, physically remove the body. And through those times, I did get to know one of the coroners in the counties, and he really uh, had very complimentary things to, to say to me regarding how I handled the families and the situations. And I told him that if he was, actually, I asked him if he was ever going to hire on any more deputies, that I'd be very interested in if he'd give me a consideration. So about nine or 10 months later, I did get a phone call from him. He was considering hiring on but he wanted me to follow him on calls so that he could see how I would handle the death cases, and uh, which I did. I followed him on for about nine or 10 months. And at that point, then he did offer me the position and I was sworn in. And, and then I was uh, a part-time deputy coroner. I was still working in the, the corporate travel during the week. And then I would be on call as a deputy coroner on the weekends. It seems to me, Donna, that in the midst of the trial of going through a divorce, um, certainly uh, there's wave after wave of pain and hurt and confusion and self-doubt. And you decided uh, very consciously to channel your pain into trying to ease the pain of others. Uh, that seems to me, as I hear you speak, to have been the principal attraction. Am I correct in that? You are absolutely 100% correct. I don't know if it was that I felt that I was broken and I wanted to focus on others that obviously the loss of a loved one is much uh, worse than, a, I mean, divorce is like it's a, the death of a marriage, but it's not like losing a loved one. I wanted to be able to help other people and focus on their uh, sad moments to in some way share my compassion and and help them in any way that I could. And I felt like that would be giving back to the community, like it's a doing something constructive and feeling like I was doing something worthwhile that people would appreciate. I think there are three jobs that are extremely difficult where um, persons are called upon to tell loved ones that they've lost someone of great significance in their life. Obviously a coroner, uh, a hospital chaplain, and uh, very often physicians and, and, and policemen have to do it. Uh, when you went on your first call, uh, if you will, as a kind of an apprentice coroner, I guess I could use that term, uh, it was a suicide and it was your first encounter with a dead body. Uh, can you walk us through that initial experience of getting out of a car, out of a vehicle, walking up a path, knowing that you're going to see somebody who is deceased. Yes, it, oh, I will never forget, obviously I won't forget any of the cases, but the drive, it was in, in the middle of winter. And so I had about a, let's say a 20, 25 minute drive to get to the location. Now, every death scene is considered a crime scene until the investigation has been completed. So as I'm driving up on the highway, I had a flat tire. And of course, then I went into a panic because, 
It's snowing. The visibility was horrible. There was a suicide. You know, they're waiting for me. And so by the time I did get the tire um, replaced, which I had to call service and got to the, it was in a home. When I walked through that door, and of course the adrenaline is rushing because you have no idea what you're in for. I'd never been in any kind of a situation like that before or seen such horrific scenes and I walked through the door, and at that point, they had pulled the the body out of uh, where the person had committed suicide, which was down in like a hole. It was like a crawl space. And had I not had that flat tire, I would have been there, and I would have had to have gotten down into that hole to help pull him out. And so he was laid out on the floor in the living room, and everybody was watching me as I, everybody as in the police officers, my boss, waiting for my reaction. And when I opened that door and walked through, I just stopped in my tracks because what I was looking at, which was a man on the floor in the middle of the living room that had no face because he had used a, a, a gun and three quarters of his head was gone. And I, it was like time stood still and it, it's, it reminded me of, which is not a good comparison, but it reminded me of in the movie, the wizard of Oz, only the opposite where everything is black and white. And then she opens the door and everything is in color. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was the opposite. Everything was in color. I opened that door and everything went black and white time stood still. It felt like eternity, but it was probably only seconds and then everything came back to life again. And they were just waiting to see what my reaction would be. And of course, thankfully, on that first call, I had my boss who was uh, training me. And so I followed all of his orders of what needed to be done. Let me ask you a question. Um, a lot of people mistakenly think that performing is false. It isn't. Uh, when a man proposes to uh, his, his intended uh, it's a performance, but it's a most sincere performance because he's hoping f to receive a favorable uh, uh, retort. Yes, I'll marry you. Um, so there are times that we can perform an act, but we're actually not insincere. We are just doing what's required of us in that function. Were you at that moment where you held your breath, you saw a man with no longer features of, of his face or head, um, were you conscious of the fact that I need to perform because I need to instill confidence in those who potentially will want to hire me that I can do this job. Were you able to have those two uh, realms of thought? One is your initial reaction and then also what's required of you right from the get-go. Yes, absolutely. You go into a certain mindset comparable to uh, prior to going in for surgery, let's say where you know you have something you have to do and you're not going to turn around and run away. So I, yes, I went into a, that, as I said, a mindset to complete the duties that I needed to do. However, I never lost sight of the fact that that was a human being on the floor. It was somewhere, wherever, you know, the death occurred. It was someone's mother, father, sister, brother, and they had loved ones. And that person that person's life is as important as mine is. So I always yes. treated each one or handled each decedent as if they were family to me and was always respectful and they never lost their dig dignity. I did become very good at performing my duties, doing the investigation, being very focused on the investigation, but never losing sight that I was going to be respectful to the, the decedent and the loved ones that might be present on the, in the crime scene or in the home or building, wherever it took place. So let me ask you about that initial encounter, uh, because it, I would imagine it served as a type of template for a lot of things that would follow over the uh, next decade and a half of you doing this. When you got back into the vehicle by yourself and you pulled away, having had that experience, did you cry? Did you shake? Did you say, I'm proud of myself? Did you say, I don't know if I can do this? What was your initial reaction when you were by yourself? 
I actually believe that uh, I was somewhat in shock. I couldn't believe what I'd actually just witnessed and experienced because it's not the same as when you're watching horror or mm. uh, death scenes on on a, a, a screen, a TV screen or movie. Mm. When you are hands deep in death and you're touching the decedent and it's all around you, it becomes very personal. And so when I was back in my my car i thought to myself i of course in your mind you're replaying everything that you've just witnessed and mm-hmm. then by the time i got home and of course the adrenaline is rushing through your system and you're you're like you're on edge and it's so it's comparable to i would say skydiving you know the adrenaline rush it it must be uh, it just pulls you out of one universe into another virtually. It was very difficult. And then you go home and you've got, I had sons at home. Of course, I'm not going to share what I just uh, witnessed and experienced. You can't do that. And so it all stayed inside of me. But I would, I actually got quite, or I thought I had gotten quite good at keeping it all inside of me and then still having laughter and happiness when I was with my family, trying as much as I could. And at night when I'd go to bed, these scenes would start rushing into my my head. And then I think, oh my God, I've got to push those out. It took all of my will just to push them out of my, my thoughts because otherwise it would drive me crazy. And in all actuality, it really was eating away at me and chipping at my heart. And that's how I started writing. In the community that you were in, your county, uh, deputy coroners are hired and sworn in, and you described part of that process at the outset of this program. Uh, But the coroner is elected, uh, which is a curious thing. I don't think many people are always aware that in some counties, at least, some communities, coroners are elected. Uh, Do they campaign? I mean, how does that work? I've never seen somebody say, you know, I want to be your elected coroner. Uh, Yes, many of them campaign. My former was... uh had retired from law enforcement. So he'd been in the com- community for quite some time. And uh, yes, in, in our county that the coroner is elected, the deputies were sworn in or hired and sworn in and all of the deputies were on a part-time basis. So all the deputies that I worked with were also, they had backgrounds in, uh, one was in a, uh, was a fireman, another was a paramedic. He had one that worked at a hospital as a chaplain. I had a little bit of a medical background, very minimal, which would be uh, nursing assistant certification. I'd worked with a couple of nephrologists uh, for a very brief time as a medical assistant. And then I'd worked at a hospital as well as a clinical technician on the neurosurgical floor. But I didn't have any in-depth schooling or training in the medical field. And yet you have to make very important decisions. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, delighted to tell you that my guest is Donna Frankhart. She has written a book entitled I've Seen Dead People, A Diary of a Deputy Coroner. Now, I'd like to ask you, if I may, Donna, uh, the coroner decides whether or not there will be an autopsy, whether there is a suspicious death, or uh, if it's... uh, uh, presumed to be, um, I won't use the word benign because death isn't benign, but uh, shall we say acceptable. And you have spoken about, for instance, you can look at a body and if it's supposedly a suicide, yet the person's on their back and yet you see blood pooling around the stomach, you know something's awry, that they've been moved. Uh, You Mm -hmm. look for the eyes. You can see if there's various red dots in the eyes uh, in relation to hanging and what have you. when you arrive, as I indicated before, at a location, you, as just described by, for instance, something that may look awry, um, you have to decide whether or not there's going to be an investigation if it looks um, like something unnatural has occurred or happened. Uh, th- that's a very, very great responsibility. How do you carry that every day in that line of work? It is a very big responsibility because the coroner, we were the voice of the dead when they could no longer speak. And so if they've died at the hands of another, it's our responsibility. Well, it's actually a team working together. 
the body is under the possession of the coroner, whereas the crime scene is under control of the police or law enforcement. And then in unison, you all work together as a team. If there's any question of doubt, it's better to order the autopsy than not to rule out any foul play. It may not be visible on the scene that there's any foul play, but that doesn't mean you're going to rule out that there wasn't any. So if I ever had any doubts and things were just a little, I was a little unsure, I would then call my boss and ask him um, to help me in determining whether there should be an autopsy. And that would be along with the the police that were working and the detectives that were working the scene as well. How do you handle the potential for people to go into hysteria? I'm talking about loved ones who are in the house. And uh, let's say it does look uh, very, very question, questionable, spurious. And you say, um, we're going to need to do a autopsy. And then suddenly family members start wailing and saying, oh, my God, no, don't touch him, don't touch her, and what have you. How do you handle the tensions of a moment like that? That's a good question. And you're right. You just don't know the reactions that the loved ones are going to have. And they would range from hysteria to uh, disbelief to sadness to denial. There were always police officers at the scene and they would keep things under control. Um, I believe that I had a way in talking with families that I was very empathetic and uh, I would hear them out. Of course, the police officers were there and I never really had a situation, a case where people were out of control. So I would calmly speak with them and just, you know, tell them that we wanted to make sure and rule out that there wasn't anything that was out of place or that they died at the hands of another and uh, so that we, they would have an answer as to what caused the death. And I would, I, you know, I'd listen to them. And that was the key thing. I listened to them. I heard them. I respected them. And I never had a situation where, where people or someone was out of control. So I was very blessed. So as the coroner, you have said that you were in possession of the body. So um, if somebody calls up and says, I've just come home, my... Uh, heaven forbid, but my brother's dead, he's he's not moving. No one is going to touch that that body until you arrive first, and that body is legally under your control, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. At what point do you relinquish that and, and allow the police to view it as potentially a crime scene? What, what is the order? When, well, first, of course, whomever makes the phone call, and then you've got the uh, – paramedics or first responders, the police, the fire department go to the scene. Once they've done what they need to do and it's uh, determined that the person has died, then the coroner is called or the deputy coroner. I'll refer to just myself as a deputy coroner. We go to the scene. No one touches the body, as you said, until the coroner gets there. The deputy pronounces the time of death examines the body, draws the fluids. Once we've gone through what we need to do, then the police will uh, do what, you know, do their investigation. But depending on the type of case it is and what the circumstances are, there were scenes that I would uh, arrive on and I would pronounce the time of death and then uh, check for identification and, you know, like check the body, examine the body. And then I would back up and let the detectives and the police do what they needed to do for their investigation. I nev never left the crime scene because the body was still under my possession, but I would, I would back up and let them do what they needed to do. And again, it was always uh, in unison, the team, we would work together as a team. Now, something I found particularly interesting, uh, which goes contrary to the cinematic version, and I'm sure a lot of things that you see on television, you just think, <laughs> that would never happen. <laughs> um, but a, a body, um, I want to say, heaven forbid, that hasn't been found for two weeks, the time of death is based on when you encounter that body, even, it, even though it's been somewhere perhaps wasting away for two weeks. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yes. It's the time that we pronounce the, that we pronounce that time of death when we arrive. A very um, practical question, but a delicate question. And um, I, I only ask this because I'm quite sure people wonder the same thing. In times when you encounter somebody who's been uh, dead for a considerable length of time, how do you deal with the odor? Do you wear special masks with perfume or something? I mean, that must be extremely difficult uh, under those circumstances. Yes, there, and all deaths are different. It depends on the uh, temperature of the body, the temperature of the room, the conditions, the of the uh, the weather where the death took place. A body could range anywhere from decomp to um, skeleton skeletal. Or the very opposite, where the body, because we're made up of so much liquid, that the body bloats. And so you have to be very careful because the body, will, if you try touching it or moving it, moving it, it's going to pop. And then you're going to have all the fluids all over you. So we would have the hazmat suits that we would, we would don or put on. And also I would carry a jar of Vicks Vapor Rub. And I would put that under my nose. Mm. So I would do that quite often. Or some officers, I would know that I was in for a difficult case. If I would pull into a, a driveway or a parking lot and an officer would hand me liquid peppermint and then I and they're standing outside, then I knew it was gonna be bad. It was gonna be a tough one. Yes, yes. Um <laughs> In in the process of going through all this, at some point when you do declare that it looks like foul play, um, then the body is – you escort the body to uh, a transitional vehicle and then it goes to a forensic pathologist to do the autopsy. Are you no longer involved or do they get back to you and say uh, once in a while, I, I, could you tell us what you encountered when you initially saw the body and things of that nature? In other words, is there a correspondence of information between you and the forensic pathologist? Uh, depending on the case, there were times when and and schedules that I would attend the autopsies. Of course, we had reports that we'd fill out, which would have all of the information needed that would be handed over, taken down with the body to the forensic pathologist. If the deputy wasn't unable to attend the autopsy because we were all on a part-time basis and so we had other jobs, you also have the detectives that would be present at the autopsy. And so once the, if I was not able to attend the autopsy and it was completed, then of course the reports would be uh, shared with the coroner's office. And at some point the coroner would then uh, tell the deputy what the cause of death was, or we'd see the reports. One of the cliches in death scenes in movies, and, and you could take this back to the 1970s, back with Peter Falk and Columbo and what have you, is the whole idea of rigor mortis. But as I understand it, that's not a, a complete state. Uh, the, a body will go into rigor mortis, stiff, and then after a while it will come out of it again. Is that correct? That's correct. So within a few hours, you can rigor can start setting in, and then after, uh, let's see, I think it's about 24 to 36 hours, it can start breaking down. I had watched funeral directors break rigor. I personally myself was never able to do it. I, that was just something that I couldn't do. But I didn't even know that there was such a thing that you could break the rigor. How would one do that? Do you actually move the arms or legs or something and then it will just... Yes. Okay. And To me, it, it looked like they were breaking a limb, but it was actually just breaking the rigor. It wasn't breaking bones. Okay. So it's rigor is the coagulated uh, liquid matter, which makes the body stiff, correct? Correct. Okay. I want to get away from the uh, specificity of what you encounter to what I consider to be your greater mission of dealing with people. Um, I instantly liked you when I saw some interviews that you did um, where Thank it you. was very, very evident to me that you had great respect for the dead. And, and interestingly, I think, a uh, point of identification. There was some years back um, a situation where um, 
during wartime, some American soldiers had evidently uh, encountered the enemy and it made national news and um, they had evidently urinated on the bodies of the enemy. And although one can understand um, if they lose comrades, and I'm not in any position to cast judgment because I'm safe in the studio, but they did uh, in a very clear way desecrate the body even of the enemy. If we go with the idea as some still hold to, that humans are made in the image of God or a higher power, or just even recognizing their humanity. Um, it's, it's terribly important that we show reverence to those who have died under all circumstances. Um, how are you able to express your respect to the next of kin and loved ones? Uh, because it's very clear that they felt, as you've indicated, empathy and sympathy emanating from you. Mm -hmm. I don't suppose that's always the case with, with all deputy coroners, that they, they don't have the gifting that you have. Did you consciously, before you went to any site, say uh, the equivalent of a higher thought or prayer, you know, help me to deal with this situation I'm about to walk into? I think the key is to was to look at everyone as uh, a family member and to just never lose sight that that was someone's loved one. And so they never lost their dignity. I was always very respectful. After the investigation would be completed, I would sit with the loved ones and I'd actually talk to them about their loved one, ask questions like, you know, how long were they married or what did they like to do for hobbies? So that they'd know that that person that was taking care of their loved one that had just passed away tragically or unexpectedly was being taken care of by someone who had compassion and truly did care. And even though they were going through such a traumatic uh, moment or day of losing that loved one, I'm sure many of them would not remember my face or my name or everything that I did, but I, I always hoped that they would be able to look at that day and remember there was there was someone there that was very kind to them and actually did care about their loved one. And so that was what that was very important to me as well, as as important as the investigation itself. You're listening to the voice of Donna Frankart, who has written a book called I've Seen Dead People, the Diary of a Deputy Coroner. Donna, you started to write a journal. Um, you have said elsewhere that you you not inclined to drink. Uh, uh, I come from a Scottish background, so I always feel like I let my, my, my Scottish heritage down. I'm not a big whiskey <laughs> consumer. I think I have a dram of whiskey a year or something. I'm more of a wine person. But And, and you said that uh, being an Irish uh, lass, that uh, you're not a big alcohol consumer either. But you find solace and uh, significance and meaning uh, by, if you will, uh, kind of a self-analysis by keeping a diary or a journal. Uh, which has eventually become the book. What was the uh, instigation for this? What what made you want to do it in the first place? Well, we didn't have any debriefing. So it was all staying within my head and my heart. And again, the the position that I had, it due to confidentiality and there the what I dealt with, there was no way that I could sit down and, you know, at dinner time and discuss my day with my sons or talk to friends about everything that was storing up in my head. And so I know I could have gone to a psychiatrist or psychologist, but honestly, I think not only the financial part of it, and I had insurance, but uh, there was whatever the additional cost would be. And I'm wondering if it was that I didn't want to admit that it was eating me up as much as it was because I had people that were always saying, oh my God, Donna, you are so strong. I just don't know how you can do that. You're like a superwoman. And I think to myself, if you only knew how broken I feel inside and how heavy my heart is with all of this death that I've been surrounded by, and so I decided maybe if I'd start writing down my emotions on paper, not that I was writing about the actual cases, but it was just more my emotions of how I felt and a little bit about the cases and 
and how the family's reactions were and how they dealt with the loss of their loved one. And so that's all that that's how that all started. By definition, as a deputy coroner, you're dealing with what's known as suspicious or unexpected death, which incorporates drownings, uh, electrocutions, overdose, suicide, car fatality. Um, nobody wants to see, I hope, anyone die, um, but it must be particularly arresting uh, when you see a child who has died, perhaps drowned, or young people who have been uh, killed by a car careening into a wall or something. What have you found to be the most difficult encounters that have been very, very hard to forget? Oh, so many of them are etched in my my heart, in my head, from, as you mentioned, the fatalities to drownings to, and young people, anywhere in this community that I drive past a location, the flashback of the death scene play comes into play and it comes into my thoughts. And when people see me in some that I did handle a case of one of their loved ones dying and they'll look at me and they've got that look like, you know, when somebody is looking at you, like they know they've seen you before, but they can't quite place where they've yes. seen you. Yes. And I'm not about to, I don't want to remind them. Well, see, I was the one that took care of your son when he was in that car wreck. You know, I I don't want to do that unless we get into a conversation. I'll usually just keep going like, Oh, please. No, (laughs) you know, because I did have at one time and it's in the book, I had uh, put gas in the car. And so it was a beautiful sunny summer day. I was on call. So I had my uniform on And I went in to pay for the gas and the young girl that was working the register was smiling and, you know, she greeted me and then her eyes went down to my shirt and saw where I had the county and then I was a deputy coroner and she threw my credit card down on the countertop and she started crying because it brought back memories of a child that she'd had that drowned in their pool in the backyard. For me, I was always trying to remain calm when I'd hear sirens thinking, Oh my God, I've got two sons. You know how boys are on, I'm not, yes. not all boys, but Oh my God, if they're out driving somewhere, you know, right away, I'm texting my family to make sure when I would hear the sirens to kind of get an idea of where they are, are they answering? So are they okay? So it was trying to keep things in perspective and not always overreacting to every siren that I'd hear or every ambulance or police car. I am talking with Donna Frankart, who is the author of I've Seen Dead People, The Diary of a Deputy Coroner. Donna, I want to talk about the um, less apparent side. Um, first of all, the, the, the spiritual side, because it's definitely a, 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 a irrefutably a spiritual side to, to death for most people. First of all, have you ever had an encounter where someone's been presumed to be dead and they've shocked everyone by moving um, five minutes later? One hears of these cases. Have you ever encountered something like that? I personally have not had where one moved. I've had where I was moving a body that a leg had gone through a wall. Must have been like it wasn't a very thick wall, obviously. They had collapsed between in a bathroom between a toilet and a wall, and the leg went through the wall. And so, when I was trying to pull the body by the arm to get him out from between the wall and the toilet, air was escaping from his lungs. And it was actually one of my earlier cases. And I looked at one of the office, and it's not funny, but I looked at one of the officers and I said, he's dead, right? And she looked at me and she said, you're the coroner. (laughs) 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 Well, yeah, one doesn't expect harmonics to come from a corpse normally. (laughs) So now I want to talk about the atmosphere. When you go into a home where someone has died or what have you, um, do you sense anything spiritual? Is there some homes that have a negative aura about them? I'm I'm not trying to get hoobie-gooby to use the expression. I've never known exactly what hoobie-gooby means. But anyway, but somehow it conveys, you know, being irrational. But is there an emotional tenor or spiritual tenor that you feel? uh, Or have you ever felt presences? Now, I know later on you spoke about your mother, uh, that you actually worked with her in hospice, in a hospice circumstance, and that you actually went and worked in hospices. So you were around people who were dying. Um, 
And so there's this neither here, neither there kind of world sometimes that people will be in. Um, I'm just wondering if you've had any curious experiences. Oh, so many. I had many of the uh, deaths at the scene. I could feel their souls, their spirits in the room. I, I could feel the presence and things would happen a lot of that. I Some of actually, I should say some of the cases I did put in the book experiences where there was one in particular where uh, there was a young guy that was into a more of a natural spiritual kind of religion. The officers were uh, kind of joking a little bit about what the family wanted to do, which was they asked if they could have his skull so they could carve his skull uh, because he was a Wiccan. And so they were kind of chuckling about that. And I just said, you really shouldn't laugh because he's here and he is watching. And so at that point, then I bent down to draw the fluids for toxicology it wasn't anything suspicious. He had uh, a lot of medical issues and he just passed away unexpectedly. And I was going to draw the fluids and uh, my pager went off at the, the exact moment that I was going to insert the needle. And I almost fell off my haunches. They laughed about, the officers laughed about that. So then I went back to trying to draw, I actually answered the page and then I went back to the body and I was just about to insert the needle for the second time. And there was a rotary phone on the wall and it started ringing like at the loudest volume. And one of the officers, we all looked at each other. He picked up the phone, he answered it and he was like, hello, hello, hello. And there's no one on the other end. So he just, they kind of shrugged their shoulders and put the phone back, you know, on the hook the third time I was just about to insert the needle, the phone started ringing again. The same thing happened at that point. Everybody walked out of the room to kind of take, you know, catch their breath and you know, walk away for a couple of seconds. We went back to the decedent and then I was able to complete uh, drawing the fluids and some coins showed up at the side of his head. They appeared at the side of his head which weren't there before. So there, there are things, it's like some of them will leave messages or try to get your attention um, at the scene. I had a medium that told me that because of my compassion and respect for the decedent at the scene, that a lot of them, because they, they've died tragically, many of them don't realize that they're dead or they don't know what they're supposed to do. And I know it sounds odd, but if you're really into the spiritual that uh, it is very possible. They don't know what to do. They're confused. And they were very um, pleased that I treated them so respectfully. So many of them would follow me home, but most of them wouldn't cross over the, the threshold. But some of them did. And so I had things that would happen at home and not just with me, but that my sons experienced also. So it wasn't that I was imagining things because it was happening to them too. And it's interesting that since the book has been published, I've had people that are in the death industry that have reached out to me. There's one coroner in particular that is in a Southern state. And she said to me, her husband's a police officer. And she said, oh my God, we've got so much activity going on at home. So please do tell me. Well, she said every night her husband has to have, when they go to bed, her husband has to have the fan going because he can't stand the sound of hearing a particular spirit that you can hear walking down the wooden floor of the hallway to their bedroom and then sits on their bed and their bed moves as the 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 spirit sits down on the bed. And I said, well, why don't you sell the house? And she said, well, because it was her husband's great grandparents and it's been handed down to the generations. So they don't know if it's a loved one from the past that's in the home or if it's someone that one of them brought home from one of the death scenes that they'd worked. Moving along to another area of, uh, of pursuit here. Indeed, life is uh, a journey, but death is part of that journey. Um, what has death taught you? And in your book, at the end of every chapter, you have a takeaway or a circumstance. You, you look at a takeaway, something you've learned from it. What has dealing with death on such a regular basis 
taught you about life? Yeah, yes, I, I had a takeaway after every chapter. I wanted to walk away with a positive, something positive that I'd learned from each case, even though they were all very tragic. And that was that whether it was bringing loved ones together, um, because once they've lost someone in their family or someone that they love, they realize we really should be together more often. And I need to tell my loved ones how much I care about them and love them. For me, it I was always very aware and appreciative of every day that I have, but it really does put you on another level of realizing that every breath that you take is a gift and that you should never take for granted every morning that you wake up and every day that you have and you should embrace the beauty of nature around you and even when times get tough or boring, mundane, just be thankful that you have those moments because there are others that thought they would have it too, and they didn't. They didn't have that extra second or minute or hour. Don't hold back in telling people that you love them. Uh, take care of your elders. Take care of your neighbors, your elderly neighbors. Just uh, embrace life. How has it affected your psyche? Um, this kind of work that you have done for years and years and years. And what effect did it have on other relationships? For instance, romantic. Um, I'm sure you've had various people in your life and the demands placed on you must make it very hard at times to, you know, enjoy a, a Valentine's dinner or, or whatever it may be. And I'm sure it has produced stresses. So what has been, I suppose really I'm asking, what has been the cost of this dedication? I honestly um, would say that it has affected, it has, I wouldn't change a thing, but I do believe that I have scars that run very deep. I am more passionate about life itself. And I think for many people, as far as romantically, there hasn't been any romantic. <laughs> well, first off, I was working seven days a week because I was working the corporate full-time and then as a deputy part-time. I think because of my divorce, the job as a deputy coroner, everything that I was experiencing and working, I was so focused on that and helping others. And at the point now, I have not been a deputy since 2015. I have not really had a relationship. And I think it's a culmination of the divorce itself. Um, the fact that I am probably very extreme when it comes to life as far as, you know, embrace life and let's go and enjoy the beauty of the walk with the vibrance of the colors of the flowers. And people probably think I'm a little bit too much, but I'm just very passionate about life and so I think I I put the walls up I feel like I I felt like I was a little bit not jaded but perhaps um damaged perhaps damaged that I'm afraid to have anybody close to me because I might lose them, even though I've got loved, you know, I've got my sons, I've got my family, my loved ones. I had so many death cases that I worked and I, I did uh, take care of my mom the last five months of her life. She was put on hospice. She moved in with me. And so I watched her as she actively died and I was with her until the very end. And I thought that after all of those death cases, that I would be able to handle it better than I did, but I actually went numb and, and it was hard for me to process lo losing a loved one so much more difficult than what I thought it would be. So I, I've had, I had a therapist that told me a few years ago that, and a chaplain, that everybody that's been in that field has some degree of post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been told I have post-traumatic stress, and um, so I deal with that every day. I try not to overthink 
when I'm not feeling well or someone, one of my loved ones, uh, you know, something's going on. I try not to think of the worst case scenarios that you would think after seeing so much of such tragedy that it would be hard not to, but it's a daily challenge. Donna, I think one of the most interesting things you said was that you may be afraid to establish new relationships because you're afraid of losing someone you care about. But if I may be so bold, I'd like to leave you with a thought. And the thought is this. Every hello is the beginning of a goodbye. So my hope and prayer for you, romantic and otherwise, is that you will have many hellos and feel comfortable with them because there will be goodbyes. But some of us believe there's a hello again. I have to tell you, Donna, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for being a part of Watching America. Um, We try to emphasize when we can, and we usually can, Americans who are part of the fabric that make this country so great and make it function and work. Your empathy, your sympathy, your humanity, your kindness, your sensitivity, your intelligence, your brilliance, and your intuition is a great gift to persons in this country that encounter you. And so we're so grateful that you've been a part of watching America today. And I, in particular, am very grateful myself. So I wish you God's blessings. And the book is entitled, I've Seen Dead People, A Diary of a Deputy Coroner, written by Donna Frankhart. Thank you, Donna. Alan, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored and grateful that you took the time to speak with me. The book is available on Amazon, and it has also been written to screenplay adaption for a feature film. Jeff Ohm, who is the going to be the producer and director, has been actively speaking with agents in filling the major roles with A-list actors. And also, if I may add my uh, quip, so to speak, would be, as a former coroner, the end of your day is the beginning of ours. What a thought. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What a thought. Okay. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.